I sent an email to the church to let them to let you all know that we are going to have a guest speaker today. But yesterday, early afternoon, I got a text from them saying that he can't make it. Um, he's got COVID, so I'm not even going to act like I had something ready and prepared <laughs> to share with you. Um, tomorrow, I'm actually going to have an opportunity to uh, give some instructions to church planters on leadership. And as I was reflecting on that and preparing for that, I thought, wow. Like, it would be great to share that with our church, and for two reasons. One, because um, I, I believe this should be the leadership culture of our church. Like, if you want to be a leader in our church or lead in any sort of capacity, I hope the things that you hear today will be the culture that you begin to embrace and embody as you lead people in this church, in whatever capacity it is. But I also think it's important because nearly everyone here leads in some capacity. Like, you've got influence, whether that's at work or among employees or peers or friends, roommates, home and family. You lead or you have influence in some kind of capacity. So what I basically said is some of you have positional leadership, which is I'm the boss. I walk in. I'm a supervisor. I'm people directly report to me. I've got influence. That's positional leadership, positional authority. Others of you have relational leadership or relational authority. For some reason, your friends confide in you and look to you as the expert. Like, can you tell me what to do in navigating the situation? And you're like, well, why are you asking me? Like, people gravitate towards you for counsel, for advice. And you've got relational authority, relational influence and leadership. And others of you have some level of expertise or knowledge that you're seen as someone who's got leadership capacity. God has given you knowledge in your industry or in your field that people look to you for leadership. Hey, I heard you graduated with a similar degree, or I've heard you've gone through something similar in your life, or you know how to navigate that. You've got knowledge, you've got expertise or experience, and therefore you've got authority, right? You've got leadership. So God has given you the ability to influence others in some kind of capacity, whether that is positional, relational, or in the form of expertise and experience. And I imagine you want to grow as a leader. But if you're a Christian today, and I realize that not all of you may be Christian, if you're a Christian today, our hope is that others somehow, even indirectly, would be in, that our leadership would be different. In fact, it'd be somewhat disruptive. I can tell you as a pastor, you know what I've discovered? It is possible to lead, to grow a church and even a platform and not even remotely resemble Jesus. Because you're relying on charisma, personality, and talent, and all of those things in and of themselves are not bad things. But it is possible to grow influence and not even remotely resemble Jesus. And I hope today, as you think about your sphere of influence and how you lead, even if it's not in a church setting, you can commit to leading in, in a way that resembles the values and the worldview of Jesus and his apostles. Can I say that again? So how should we lead? We want to lead in ways that reflect the worldview and values of Jesus and the apostles. Because as I was preparing for these church planters, like there are some churches that are so set on their mission, they're, they're so about their mission that they try to accomplish it in ways that are counter to the values and worldviews of Jesus. They bully people. 
They trample on people. They treat their volunteers and their leaders as a means to an end for their own platform and their own gain. We don't want to be so set on our objective as leaders that we do it in ways that betray the values and worldview of Jesus. So not everything, thank you, not everything that I say today will directly apply to your specific sphere of influence. All right? So you have to be creative. How is, I, how is this going to, how do I translate this for how I lead and where I lead? So you have to be creative, but here's the thing. And however God might lead you, realize your leadership will be different. It'll be disruptive. And what do I mean by that again? I mean, it should defy conven- conventional wisdom. Like, when you operate from the worldview of Jesus and the values of Jesus, it is disorienting to people because it's not the same as the values and worldview of this world. It's strange in our secular age. So what is that? Well, before I tell you, I want you to think about what is your influence? Where do you lead? Think about the people that you have influence over, the people that come to you, whether it's in position, relationships, or through experience and expertise. Where, how do you lead, all right? Now, how can we lead disruptively. All right, here are four ways, and if I have time, I'll get to five, okay? Four ways that we can lead disruptively. The first is this. We lead with dependence. We lead with dependence. Because most people today live with the illusion of independence. And so when they meet a leader who, who acknowledges their own dependence, that's a little disorienting. It disrupts the way they think of and experience the world. We today think we are independent of the earth, of one another, and God. C.S. Lewis, in a letter to a friend, reflected on the ways, this is as it relates to the earth, okay? He writes in a letter reflecting on the ways that we have a different relationship to the place we live in than our ancestors had, okay? I know most of us are not from the U.S. or might be from somewhere else, but in general, we relate to the earth differently than our ancestors. This is from Jake Metter's book, What Are Christians For? He quotes Lewis in saying, The feeling about home must have been quite different in the days when a family fed, had fed on the produce of the same few miles of country for six generations. For there was, in a sense, a real, not metaphorical, a real connection between them and the countryside, the land. What had been earth, air, and later corn, and still later bread, really was in them. They could see that the earth was inside of them. We, of course, who live on a standardized international diet, are really artificial beings and have no connection, except in sentiment, with any place on earth. We are synthetic men, uprooted. The strength of the hills are not ours. And I think you experience this in, in like, what, 30, 40 minutes, we're going to head to the park and we're going to get pot bellies, <laughs> all right, sandwiches. It's going to be prepackaged in a box and, and we're going to get chips from Lay's or whatever. And you won't be able to pronounce half the things that you're putting in your system. Like, <laughs> you know, like, what, what, what am I eating? Like, we are cut off from the earth. We are not even aware of the people that have helped contribute to the farmers and the land that has contributed to our sustenance. We live independently of our of our uh, 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 independent, we live under the illusion of independence from the land that we walk on. Except the Bible tells us over and over again, from dust we came into dust we return. We are of the earth, right? We're independent of others too. You think about the, th- 
like the number of people that you've relied on today just to be here, like unless you, you created your own clothes, someone else made them for you, right? Unless you went to a family friend to, and they made it for you, you probably went to a vendor or a store and they have marketers and they've got truck drivers and they've, they, who also connect with other industries to provide the clothes that you have. I was, as I've said this before, like even in dressing, addressing ourselves, we had to rely on others. I had to consult my weather app to see what do I wear today, right? Like you can't even make the decision on what to wear without consulting others. Someone had to open this gym for us today. There was a leak <laughs> and made sure that nobody was in the splash zone. Like, do you know the number of people that have you have relied on today just to be here? But most of us are oblivious to it. We live our lives thinking, I don't need anybody else. I'm, I am my, my own self. I'm independent of others. Our independence is an illusion. And we live in, uh, under, it, it, with this illusion that we're independent from God as well. We live in an unenchanted world where we don't need him. I shared this with some of the members of our church uh, this week. I was quoting Psalm 104. The Bible reminds us we are in an enchanted world. Who rules the tides and tells them this far and no more? God does. Who waters the earth every single day as if it's his garden? God does. Who, who brings forth the, the, the yield from the earth and provides for the beasts of the earth and gives us, therefore, the means to live for oil for our faces and bread for our bellies? God does. We live in a world that's filled with God's presence, but most of us functionally live our lives as if we are independent of him. You know, we we're praying for something, someone just, uh, uh, for healing for someone just like an hour ago. And I had to remind myself in that prayer that we're not just now asking God to be involved in that person's health. No, God sustains the breath in our lungs. That we live until he calls us home. Every cell in our body stands to salute him at his command. He is intricately involved in our health. He's involved in the details of our life. He's involved in creation. But most of us live under the illusion of independence. So when somebody meets a leader who wears their dependence on their sleeve, it's different. Some things are more caught than taught. Okay, even among with Christian leaders, like I've been in meetings with other pastors and everyone knew that person for their expertise and what they accomplished or how big their church was or their charisma and personality. And I've sat in that meeting with those pastors without them saying anything at all. I've walked away thinking I've got to be more like that. I've got to be more extroverted. I've got to have a better personality. Maybe I do. Some of you be like, yeah, you probably need to. Right. Like, I've walked away thinking that I need to be more like that. More, it's more caught than taught. But here's what Jesus says. He says in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, and it's here on the back. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And get this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What can we accomplish apart from him? Can you say it with me? Nothing. So all the charisma, all the personality, and all the talent that we think has been most decisive in maybe people in your industry to getting where they are, apart from God, they can do nothing. 
John the Baptist says this whenever he realizes that his influence is waning. He says, nobody has any authority in this earth unless it's given from above. And seeing Jesus increase his joy, he says, now Jesus is increasing and so therefore my joy is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. It's an acknowledgement that if we have anything in this world, it's because of Jesus. I had a professor while I was studying theology who said, this is the most important verse for you for ministry. Get this in your heart. Get this in your mind. Let it seep into your bones that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So what do we want to do if you're a leader in our church? We want to wear our neediness for Jesus on our sleeves. We need him. We depend on him. And we don't apologize for that. That's how he made us. When we, when we live dependently on him, we acknowledge that before our brothers and sisters. We acknowledge that we need others and we need God. When we live that way, we tell them this is how the world really works. We need God. We're dependent on him. And he's gracious to provide. So ask yourself today, when you lead, do you lead with dependence? And I know it's going to look different in your specific sphere of influence, but do you at least carry that in your heart that you, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing? Do you embody that? Do you embrace that in your heart? Do you joyfully admit it? The second point, we lead with a love for God's glory and others. So we lead with dependence and we lead with love for God's glory and others. These days, there's a tremendous pressure as a leader to constantly express ourselves. Right? Like everything you do is, is, is you approach it differently than previous generations and people before us, right? You as, it's a way to assert your identity, your education and what you know. It's, um, it's a way of further solidifying your identity among other people. Your career, it's a way of establishing yourself and your identity among others. Your relationships and who you're with and how long you've been together and all this kind of stuff. Or how many people you know or how many, you know, are you in the room where it happens, right? All of that is a way of securing your identity. There's a tremendous pressure to do that. And therefore, especially in New York, because as you know, it's not about what you can do or what you know. It's who you know. There is a temptation to use people in leadership. The people who, you, who report to you or that you're influenced over, you, you can sometimes see them as a stepping stone to where you need to go and where you want to go to further solidify your identity and express yourself. So when a person doesn't do that, doesn't use people for themselves or their own platform or their own influence, but when they lead out of love for God and actually love for the other person, it's like, wow, that's different. You actually care about me. You're in this conversation, not thinking about how it's going to somehow serve you in the future, but you actually are listening to me, making eye contact. That's amazing. It's revolutionary. It disrupts our fixation with self-expression. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. He writes, it's a second section there in your, in your handout. Romans 1, 21 through 23. For all they, though they knew God, they neither glorified him, as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And get this, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings. And reptile, birds and animals and reptiles. So what do you, what, what's the exchange there? They would rather have the glory of created things than the glory of God. 
They love the glory of created things more than the glory of God. Now, guess what? We are created beings. So anytime, and, and, the, and the approval of, that you want from people, you're wanting the glory that comes from created beings and not necessarily the glory that comes from God or loving his glory. You see where it's gone off. This is why Jesus, when he's asked what are the greatest commandments, he goes for what we love. He says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment, and love your neighbor. And what we'll see as we follow Jesus is the greatest commandments is to love God supremely and our neighbor sacrificially. As leaders, we love God supremely. We love his glory, and we love our neighbors sacrificially. Now, I get it. In some of our industries, like if you want to get promoted, you got to be noticed. So how do you try to get noticed, but at the same time not be after your own glory, right? Like how do you do that and not crave attention? Well, yeah, you want to do things for the glory of God. And, and I get how you've got people have to pay attention to you and notice you. But here's the thing. Whenever you, whenever you try to strive to excel in your career or whatever area of influence it is, you've got to do it as someone who knows you're already found. You're already discovered. You're already seen. You're already known. Like there is, there is no one else's gaze. There are not enough eyeballs that can look at you and see you that's going to satisfy the craving in your heart. But when you know that God sees you and God knows everything about you, all of the sin and failures and flaws and weaknesses that nobody else sees, and yet he loves you and moves towards you, when that satisfies you, you no longer need the gazes of other people. You are free to love him in return and actually now set your gaze on others and love them sacrificially. So I want you to think about your work. I want you to think about your relationships. I want you to think about your friends, your sphere of influence. When you think about where you have influence, do you lead out of a love for God's glory and a love for them? Do you lead from a place of knowing you are already found? And from that place, you look to do all and be all you can be for the glory of God and the joy of others. How do we do this in our church as a church plant? How will we be committed to God's glory, loving God's glory and loving our neighbors? And here's what we'll do. At every turn, because this is where it gets tested, we will defer recognition, because that's what we love. We want eyeballs on us. We want recognition. We will defer recognition, and we will defer resources out of love for others. Right? So whenever we can amass more recognition for ourselves, whether it's getting more followers on Instagram as a church, or we want to amass more recognition or resources for ourselves, we will fight against that and move towards the discomfort by deferring that recognition and saying, no, it is all God and others. And deferring resources and saying, no, it's not for us. It is for others. God has strengthened us to be able to help others. So we lead with dependence, and that's disruptive. We lead out of a love for God's glory in others. That's disruptive. The third thing here, we lead with the fear of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, whenever you make decisions, and you've got to do it almost on a daily basis, right? Whenever you make decisions, you find yourself in dis difficult circumstances, Right? And you're tempted to believe that some, there's something there in that decision or circumstance that's more important than God. This is what it, uh, the, the psalmist says in Psalm 53, the third paragraph here. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on God. So what he says here is that the fool doesn't just go around out loud saying there is no God, but where does he say it? In his heart. He has a posture towards life that says God doesn't exist. And the two ways that it shows itself is in wickedness, they devour my people like bread, and prayerlessness, and do not call upon God. In those days, you really didn't have atheists walking around. Most people lived, either believed in many gods or, yeah, I would say most of the world believed in many gods. You believed that in the divine. So you really didn't have atheists in those days. So the people wouldn't publicly walk around saying there is no God like they do today in America. But that didn't mean that they couldn't, even though they're religious, functionally live as if there's no God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And you see it in these ways. They don't call upon him, and they do it in their wickedness. You know, I used to think that seeking God was just a, what spiritual people do, religious people do. But that's not what it says here in, in Psalm 53. He says there is no one, what does it say here? In verse, uh, verse 2, God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand. Other translations say wise. Any who seek God. Like, I never thought of seeking God as something that was the way of wisdom, was showing understanding. Like, you get how the world works. People who don't, they don't understand. They're not wise. They're foolish. It's the way the Bible describes them. It's not just a matter of, like, you're religious or not religious or spiritual or I'm not very spiritual. The Bible's categories for it is you're foolish or you're wise. Like, you're either seeing the way the world really works or you're living under an illusion under a spell that needs to be broken. So how can we lead differently? We can fear God. And what does that mean? We can revere and regard him as the most important person to consider in every decision and circumstance. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Oh, I realize that I didn't put it here. But uh, he basically, before he sends his disciples out, he makes this really odd statement. He says, don't fear those who could kill your body. What more can they do than that? I'm like, well, that seems like a big deal. <laughs> right? He says, fear, those who could, fear the one who could throw your body and soul in hell. And what he's essentially saying there is they are not the most important person to consider in that situation. Like whatever you think is the greatest threat as you are about to go out, Realize the most important person to consider in that circumstance is not them, not the people who can actually threaten you. It's God. God is most decisive. He's the person you should be considering. Unless we are just so overcome with the bluntness of Jesus' words, the very next thing he says is, but are not two sparrows, are not sparrows sold for two coins? Yes, God has all authority to command our future, but he loves birds. And you're so much more valuable than birds. He says, if God remembers birds, which are purchased for two pennies, right, how much more would he remember you? 
And we know in light of Jesus, this means if God remembers birds that are purchased for two pennies, if he remembers birds, how much more would he remember us whom he purchased with the life of his son? At that cost, he'll never turn away from us. We can, we can face every decision, every limitation, every disappointment, and all of the suffering and know in the midst of that, God is the most important person to consider. I can entrust myself to him. He will not look away. He will remember me. When you make decisions in the dark as a leader, what does this mean? What does it mean to revere and regard as a God as the most important person? But I mean decisions in the dark. No one's paying attention. Nobody's watching. You can get away with it. What does it mean to fear God? Even if I can get away with it. Even if it, no one knows. God sees. He's the most important person to consider in this situation. I'm going to revere and regard him and treat him as that. When you make decisions in the light... Right, everybody sees and the pressure's on you and you've got to make the decision. You realize that disappointing them is not the most important thing. What does God want? Where, where is his wisdom? What is he saying? What will please his heart? That's to fear God. It's to regard him as the most important person in that situation. When you face limits and you're not sure how to get past your limitations, whether it's at work or in other areas of your life, you still can trust in God. You can revere and regard him. When there's disappointment and suffering, you can acknowledge God is in control, God is good, and he can redeem even this for your good and his glory. So ask yourself, do you lead with the fear of God? When you make decisions on a daily basis for those you lead or in your place of influence, or when you lead in our church, will you do it knowing that God is the most important person to consider? And if you do, guess what happens? to the people you lead, and they see that. They realize integrity and character matters to you because you make decisions in the dark with the knowledge of God in mind. Character matters. They realize humility is important because you, ex you admit your limits and realize that God is the most important person to consider. When they know that you experience disappointment and suffering and you fear God, you also teach them to hope, to know that God is still decisive in the midst of that. As a church, I gotta tell you, we... You know, we have to cast vision. We have to raise financial partners. We have to call landlords and hope to get custodians to work with us. Like, there, there's this constant feeling as a leader that you're always at the mercy of others. <laughs> you're always vulnerable to others and their rejection and them saying no to you. But in that moment, there's also an opportunity to say, no, the most important person is God. He's most decisive here. The last thing here. So when we talk about disruptive leadership, we lead with dependence. We lead with a love for God's glory and others. We lead with the fear of God. And then finally, we lead with weakness. So today there's a myth that everyone experiences, which is that weakness and power can never go together. They're like opposites, right? And they believe that true power comes through arrogance and aggression. And Paul was criticized for this. He was criticized for being short Amen? <laughs> I think he was bald, too, and had a unibrow. That's what tradition teaches. But um, he, was <laughs> um, he was not a very good preacher. In fact, in one of uh, his letters to the church in Corinth, he has to address that, that he's put down for not being a very good speaker. And they actually accused him of suffering way too much. So what do you think Paul's prayer would be in the midst of that, right? Like, if you're, 
if you're short, you've got a unibrow, you're bald, you're, you know, you're not a good preacher, the churches you've planted don't respect you, they're questioning whether or not you're an apostle and you're a really good leader because you suffer too much. And amid all of that, you know what God decided to do? He gave him a thorn. He didn't say, okay, you know what, I'm going to give you a few inches. It would help your, your hair grow or you become a better speaker. And that, you know, wanting to be better in your craft is not a bad thing. He's not going to say, oh, okay, you know what, they're accusing you of suffering a lot. Well, I'll show them. I'm going to let you go through a season of prosperity that shows everybody that I'm in your life and I'm with you. That's not what he did. He gave Paul a thorn. And in the midst of that, this is what Paul writes, the last section here. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. He goes from pleading about his weaknesses to boasting about it. I'm weak. I'll rejoice in it because this is the way we experience power. That is for why, for Christ's sake, I delight. I have joy in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. Because when I'm weak, this is the avenue and the pathway that I am strong. Nobody sees the world that way. The only way you have power is if you put others down. The only way people will look at you is if you're prosperous. The only way people will see you and think you're favored is if you have no problems. But Paul embraced a different way of living. And he realized, no, the values of Jesus and the worldview of Jesus is different. And he wants to lean into that direction. And so he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Is that how you see the world? Do you think about the limits you face as a leader in that way? Limitations you face. I was just sharing with a brother right before this that asked me how I'm doing. I say, I feel like my life is constantly like wonderful things that give me assurance of God's love and grace. But God withholds just enough <laughs> to make sure I know I need him. Right? We never believe our own hype. We know we can't get through a day without him. There's just, just enough in our life. It will help us know just enough weakness. If we're, we have the humility in the eyes to see it, that we need his grace, his strength, and his power. So as you think about your limits and your weaknesses, how is it an opportunity? How is God therefore positioning you as you go to him in that to experience his power? And realize this is not opposed to the way to power, but the means and the avenue by which you can experience his grace and power. I was telling someone before uh, the service, I'm, te I'm telling you guys everything that's happening before the service now, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like, there are times where, like, you know, misery loves company, right? So if I'm down some days, I'll just look at how bad other churches are doing. <laughs> you know, just like, anyone else have problems? Can someone be honest that their, their ministry is not going the way that they planned? Yeah. So I was like, I would love to just take a photo of this right here. And said, so this was what our Sunday morning was like. And like, hey, we had a guest speaker cancel at the last minute, and I'm trying to put something together. Like, this is, you know, because what is ministry? All ministry, I'll tell you, is cross and resurrection. 
the sacrificial love in life. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we, we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about the gospel. He says, the jars of clay, the jars of clay is his, his fragile appearance of weakness, like his body, his life. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the power belongs to God and not to us. And then he goes on to describe what happens to the jars of clay. We are, we are persecuted but not abandoned. We are crushed but not dri- driven to despair. And all of these things, what is this showing? That the power belongs to God. That when they persevere, these fragile jars of clay and weakness, people can see, wow, it's God at work that's helping them persevere. It's not them. The power belongs to God and not them. And then he goes on to say, we who live are given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be manifested in our mortal bodies. So death is at work in us, and life is at work in you. Cross, resurrection, sacrificial love, and life. Stepping into that weakness to know it's the avenue by means that other people and you will experience God's power and strength. When a person leads, embracing their weaknesses, not seeing it as unusual, not seeing it as strange, When other people get around you and that's how you lead, it's revolutionary. It's disruptive. It reorients them to God and how this world really works. As a church plant, we saw this again and again. I often found myself praying for less weakness. (laughs) In 2019, when we were trying to gather a team together, like we went through so much instability. I think we moved four or five times in in eight months. Like we went from a community room to a pantry meeting in a pantry in the Emmaus house, to meeting in the Catholic chapel, and then meeting upstairs in another room, and then, I forgot where the the next place, I think back in the community room of someone's residential building. Every time I'm praying against this weakness because I feel our vulnerability. And then we finally got a place, right? The banquet hall. We had three months in it, and COVID hit. Three weeks after we launched. It's like, no. (laughs) And we couldn't gather. Again, confronted with weakness after weakness, but what did God do? As we look now and we see that we're still here, there is no illusion in our mind where the power be- who the power belongs to. It's to God and not us. We carry this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power belongs to, uh, to him and not us. We embrace our weakness. We experience these limitations. And we don't apologize for it. We don't see it as strange. And sometimes, like Paul, we realize that God might not remove it, but his grace is sufficient for us. So can we go from pleading to boasting? Pleading to rejoicing and knowing that this is the way to power. When we lead with dependence, when we lead with love, when we lead with the fear of God, when we lead with weakness, we disrupt those that we lead and we reorient them to reality. And we say, this is how the way the world really works. So I don't know how that will apply specifically to you and your leadership today. But as you reflect on those things, ask yourself, how is God calling you to lead in the ways that reflect the worldview and values of Jesus? Let's pray.